Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a neurosurgeon explains how deep brain stimulation can improve the symptoms of Parkinson's disease in some patients. Basically what it does is we've realized that these conditions develop secondary to abnormal circuits that develop in the brain, uh, and this treatment somewhat resets those circuits. A nurse practitioner and diabetes educator discuss what you need to know about type 1 and type 2 diabetes. So there's no cure to diabetes. There are treatment measures and diabetes can be controlled. However, that um, incorporates a lot of other involvement and not just reliant on just medication to correct that. The Salvation Army's Director of Operations for Onondaga County joins us to tell about the services his organization provides. William Booth's motto was soup, soap, and salvation. So, you know, feed him, get him a job, clean him up. All that, plus a selection from The Healing Muse, right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll learn about diagnosis and treatment options for type 1 and type 2 diabetes from a nurse practitioner and diabetes educator. Then, we'll hear about all the services that are provided by the Salvation Army. But first, we'll explore deep brain stimulation with a neurosurgeon who offers these procedures. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. What we're talking about today is not a cure for Parkinson's disease or other movement disorders, but a treatment that may be able to help with some of the side effects. It's called deep brain stimulation, and it relies on a device similar to a cardiac pacemaker. Here to explain this procedure is Assistant Professor of Neurosurgery, Dr. Dumani Reddy. At Upstate, he's the Director of Functional and Adult Epilepsy Surgery. Welcome, Dr. Reddy. Thank you for having me, Amber. Well, I'll start by asking you to explain what deep brain stimulation is. Sure, I'd love to. So deep brain stimulation is a technique we develop for treatment of medically refractory movement disorders such as Parkinson's disease or dystonia or central tremor. It's developed in the late 90s, early 2000s by a doctor named Benabi out of France. And basically what it does is we've realized that these conditions develop secondary to abnormal circuits that develop in the brain. Uh, and this treatment somewhat resets those circuits. Uh, and it's used been used so far for patients who are medically refractory, meaning that they've tried medications and their medications are no longer working, or their medications are, have to be delivered at such a dosage that it's causing side effects they can't tolerate. And the most notable side effects that people seem to have are dyskinesias. Uh, if you think of Michael J. Fox, if you see him, he tends to have these abnormal movements. And those are the dyskinesias, not from the disease itself, not from Parkinson's, but from the medications he takes. Oh. So these this treatment can not only reduce the, the incidence of those dyskinesias, but it can allow you to reduce your medication so you don't get dyskinesias to begin with. So how does it do that? Right, so that's a big question. So we don't know for sure. Uh, before we did this procedure, we used to do a procedure similar to this where we found the same centers in the brain that now we put a deep brain stimulator in, and we used to ablate them, meaning we would burn them with the radiofrequency probe. And that we, we had done that for about 20 years before we developed deep brain stimulation. Now the problem with that was that it was permanent. If there was a side effect from it, it was a permanent side effect. Uh, and you know, even though uh, it was you know, relatively the same location in the brain that we're stimulating now, at least with stimulation, if we do get a side effect, we can turn it off. Um, so we used to think that deep brain stimulation worked the same way. It was just uh, what we called a stimulation-induced inhibition, where you would turn on the stimulation and it would effectively just shut down the nucleus you were stimulating. But all the modern research suggests it actually works in a different way. Uh, and basically how it works is by this abnormal circuit that seems to develop in these patients, it just resets it somehow. We're not sure how it does that. The most likely cause is that it kind of alters the balance of the motor cortex and how actively firing the motor cortex is. And in patients with Parkinson's disease or central tremor, the motor cortex is either hyperactive or hypoactive in certain areas, not everywhere, but in certain areas of the motor cortex. And this treatment kind of selectively finds those areas and resets them to a normal value. So you have to figure out a precise place in the brain where this is happening, right? That is correct. Most of the surgery is just determining the exact nucleus. So it's a one millimeter nucleus oftentimes in the brain that you need to find. Uh, and if you're off by, you know, more than two or three millimeters, then it doesn't work. 
So very precise has exactly. to be very lined up. Well, now t- the conditions we've talked Parkinson's, but there's some other conditions too, right? That, that might be appropriate. That's correct. It is uh, FDA approved for Parkinson's disease, uh, essential tremor, uh, dystonia. Uh, it's also a humanitarian device exemption, HDE approved for uh, Tourette syndrome and OCD. What it's not approved for, but what it has been used for. Um, but it's currently not FDA approved for, is Alzheimer's, depression. There's a lot of things now that it's actively being tried for, obesity for patients who have failed gastric bypass surgery, um, anxiety, uh, anorexia, all these things it's been tried for. Uh, you know, the literature is, is still not clear on how effective it is. So we don't routinely offer them unless, you know, they've tried everything else. And uh, you know, like I said, since it's not FDA approved, it would have to be a way of finding a, a means of, of, of funding it, which is, you know, tricky sometimes. And it's usually hard unless you're in a study. So funding, it, it is covered by some health insurers for some conditions or? Uh, that's correct. So for example, MS is then a condition that it's not uh, approved for by the FDA. But if you have an MS tremor uh, and nothing else is working, sometimes you can get approval from your insurance company to, to cover it. Okay. Um, if you have this procedure done, does it mean that you won't have to take medicines anymore? Right. So so one of the things, for example, with Parkinson's disease, this procedure is only designed to improve your motor symptoms. So with Parkinson's disease, you can have other symptoms, most notably over time you get cognitive symptoms and you get depression symptoms. So with one of the nucleus we use, called the subthalamic nucleus, we have shown that you can actually come off your medications uh, because the motor symptoms get better. with the other nucleus we use, called the globus pallidus, it is very good at improving the side effects. Uh, so we don't tend to take you off the medications if you're on, uh, if you get stimulated with the globus pallidus. But that's because the medications are helping the other aspects of the, of the disease, like the cognitive aspects and the depression aspects. When you start to stimulate the subthalamic nucleus, the symptoms get better, but your dyskinesias don't necessarily improve. So if you have side effects from medications, those don't necessarily get as better as they do if you stimulated the GPI. So we try to take you off your medications to improve your side effects as well. So all of the things that you said, that relates to areas in the brain. Exactly. All the, okay. I figured it was neurosurgeon speak. Um, sorry. So that's fine. Yeah. Um, now, how would you tell if you or a loved one would be a candidate for deep brain? Not everyone who has Parkinson's needs this, right? That's correct. Uh, and so the basic issue is, uh, it, you know, and, uh, the short answer is that your neurologist will be able to let you know. Uh, sometimes you can ask your neurologist, am I a candidate for deep brain stimulation? And they'll be able to talk to you more about it. But it's ideal for patients who are refractory, meaning either that your medication doses is such that you're taking it uh, and you're still not getting great relief, or you're having side effects from your medications and your side effects are almost, you know, to the point where you can't function normally. That being said, you know, we are using it earlier and earlier in the disease. Um, There's been no evidence that it in any way cures the disease. You always have Parkinson's. This is just to treat the symptoms of it. Uh, but we've shown that, you know, because deep brain stimulation is adjustable, meaning you can adjust how much current you give, as the disease progresses, we can control with it better if we can adjust, have these additional tools in our arsenal, including the medications, deep brain stimulation allows you to, to adjust something else. So the stimulator stays in there and you can go back and uh, adjust it. Exactly. However much. Okay. Yeah. Now, are there any age restrictions? So we used to say that, you know, over 70 we didn't do, but that's no longer the case. We will do any age. Uh, if you get to be a certain age, we do what's called a neuropsych evaluation, which is where uh, we make sure that you have enough of a cognitive reserve. So surgery in general is always a cognitive hit. Anytime you get general anesthesia, it always sets you back a bit. And brain surgery in particular can set you back even further. And this surgery very much so can actually, if you don't have enough of a cognitive reserve, can actually make you worse uh, because it... it it limits your cognitive functioning. Now, if you do have a cognitive reserve, it's not a big deal. You you bounce back very easily, and there's no no problems. But um, if you if you don't, the, then it can cause more cognitive issues than the benefit you get from the motor symptoms. So, if you're over the age of about sixty, we we send you for neuropsych testing just to make sure you have enough of this reserve. And are there any medical conditions that would make you inappropriate to have this? Sure. So we don't do this uh, surgery on anticoagulation or antiplatelet. Usually if you're on it and you can't get off of it, then it's a contraindication. And there are other other alternatives in that situation. Uh, 
But if you can come off of it for a week, and most of most patients for those most are reasons, those are blood thinners. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, they're both blood thinners, and for patients who have conditions like a prior stroke that they have to be on it, or a prior MI, my a prior heart attack that they have to be on it, or if they have a pulmonary embolus or deep vein thrombus that they have to be on it, usually you can come off of it for a week in those cases, and then we can do the surgery. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Dumani Reddy. He's a neurosurgeon at Upstate who's director of the Functional and Adult Epilepsy Surgery, and we're talking about deep brain stimulation. I wanted to find out what's involved in implanting the electrodes. Is this a, how, how long does the surgery take? It sounds like it would be pretty involved. Uh, so it's about a four-hour surgery, uh, and it depends on whether we do one side of the brain or both sides. If you're having symptoms mostly on one side, that's primarily for our tremor patients. They, they usually have, like a central tremor patient, they usually have it one side of the tremor that's worse, like the right hand is worse than the left hand, or for doing both, both sides, like our Parkinson's disease patients. So for a one-sided patient, it, it's about two and a half hours, and for a both-sided patient, it's about four hours. Uh, and the surgery is you come in, and it's an unique in terms of brain surgery because it's an awake brain surgery for the most part. Uh, we do a scan with the, a frame in place, and we register that to a previous MRI we've taken. We find the location where we need to go. Then we make the incision in the scalp and we make the hole in the skull. And we put the electrode in and we drop what's called a microelectrode recording uh, device first. And that just listens to the cells. And that's another confirmation that we're where we want to be. As we talked about before, uh, you know, this is a very small location. It's about one millimeter that we want to target. So we want multiple verification tools. And one of them is the MRI that we do before and the scan that we do with, uh, on the day of surgery. And the second one is this microelectrode recording that we hear and we can tell further by the sound of the cells are in the right location. The third one is why you need to be awake. And that's because we stimulate when we get to the right location. We make sure that your symptoms get better in the OR. And that's our kind of final confirmation that we want to be. Not only so, that your symptoms get better, but that your side of, you don't have any significant side effects from it. So the patient's awake, so you're talking to them while you're yeah, doing this? That's right. We talk oh. to them. We, we tell them each step as it goes along. And then when we start simulating, we ask them to, to talk to us. To make, we'll make sure that they have, don't have any changes in their voice. The most common and worrisome complication sometimes we can get is that this location can be very close to a portion of the brain that's important in movement. Uh, and then you can get contractions. And with those contractions that happen in your mouth or in your tongue. And so when you talk, it lets us know you're not getting them. Okay, so it's important to be able to communicate as you're doing this. That's true. Person. So that you know, that being said, we can do this with all three levels of verification, which is how we like to do it. But for patients who can't tolerate the awake surgery, we can we can do it asleep. It's just the possibility of inaccurate placement slightly higher. So if you're awake, can you feel anything? So you feel us touching your head, uh, and when we you know, make the the hole in your skull, you hear it. Uh, it doesn't hurt, but you do feel like somebody pressing on your head. Uh, most of my patients, the worst part they say is getting the frame put on in the morning, which is basically the local anesthetic to inject the, the sites. So it's a frame so that your head stays still? Exactly. It does that, and it also it's kind of gives us a coordinate system for where to go in the brain. So when we do the scan, uh, we can translate that scan into numbers, which is what we read out in the OR, and the frame itself has those numbers that lets us know where to go. So you leave these electrodes in the brain? That's correct. Um, do they have wires attached right. to them? Yeah, right. So that's the second part of the surgery. The wires come out of the head. Uh, and then for the second part of the surgery is when we put you to sleep and you get general anesthesia. And we, then we take those wires and kind of tunnel them under your skin from your head to your chest. Uh, and in your chest, we put a battery, like a pacemaker battery, uh, which is what will actually do the programming. Uh, and that's the, the part that will be adjusted every time you see your neurologist. So is are the wires just under the skin? They go through the neck? That's correct. So can, it's can, right. Can you feel them like a vessel or something? So it depends. Uh, if if you're if you're a skinny person, you can. Uh, you you hardly ever see them, but if you're a skinny person, you can definitely feel them. Most most of my patients aren't able to feel them. All right. And then you mentioned it's like a pacemaker, just a small. Um, That's correct. Yep. And that that battery, depending upon how you use it, there's two versions. There's a rechargeable version, and there's a non-rechargeable version. Uh, and depending on your settings, it usually if it's a non-rechargeable battery, it has to be replaced every four to five years. Uh, but that's a day surgery. You come in, you, I don't put you to sleep for it. I open up the, the pocket, just clean off the area, open up the pocket, take out the battery, put in a new pocket, and close it out. Uh, it takes about two hours. Uh, and you go home after like three. If you have this device in, are you still able to do um, MRIs or x-rays? Um? Yes. So there are, there are now uh, three companies that are... There are more than three, but three major companies that are producing these deep brain simulation devices. 
The most common one, Medtronic, uh, is MRI compatible. The other ones are quickly becoming MRI compatible. Well, let's talk about um, possible side effects after the surgery. Right. So the most common side effects of any surgery, infection, bleeding. Uh, so infection, the most likely site of infection is, is the battery site. If that happens, most of the time it's a superficial infection. You get put on antibiotics for a couple of weeks. It's a really bad infection. We have to take the battery out. Uh, and then we put you on antibiotics for about six weeks, IV antibiotics. And then we put the battery back in. Sometimes you can get infection of the brain leads. Uh, and that can cause meningitis, which is a more serious issue. The risk of that is less than 1%. Um, and if that happens, we have to take the entire system out. Mm. There is always a possibility of a hemorrhage uh, in the brain, which can cause stroke-like symptoms. It's, you know, Brain surgery is not something to be done lightly. That being said, the risk of that is also less than 1%. Which these are the reasons why you know we make sure you're you know medically refractory. Meaning we tried everything else uh, in terms of treatment for you, and th- we think that this is kind of one of the options that can really help you. Are there things that you tell patients to consider when they're deciding whether to have this or not? Are there like pluses and minuses they need to kind of think about? Yeah, absolutely. For the, the first thing I tell them to consider is how much their disease currently affects them. Uh, if they're treated with their medications and they're at a point where you know, they feel like they're managing, they're just not entirely happy, then that's a patient that might need to you know, think about it or wait a bit, uh, as opposed to if somebody who's dysfunctionally cannot function anymore, or you know, particularly where they're tremor patients, they can't feed themselves anymore, they can't use their hands, they can't write. Those are the patients that are you know, ideal candidates. Because this could really improve things. Absolutely, this can really improve the quality of life, and that's that's the goal with the surgery. Once again, it's not a cure for any of these diseases; it's just to improve your quality of life. Wow. Well, thank you for letting us know about this. It's my pleasure. It's offered here. Thank you. Uh, my guest has been Upstate neurosurgeon Dr. Dumani Reddy. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next. What you need to know about type 1 and type 2 diabetes. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Whether it's type 1 or type 2 diabetes, if you or someone you care about is diagnosed, you'll have a lot to learn about managing this disease. Here with me in the HealthLink on Air studio is nurse practitioner Cassandra Bradford. She's from the Jocelyn Diabetes Center at Upstate. Welcome, Cassandra. Hello. Let's, uh, diabetes type 1 and diabetes type 2 are different um, diseases. So can you kind of walk us through the differences between the two? Yes, um, type 1 diabetes long ago was um, referred to as juvenile diabetes for um, mainly linked to children. And now across the board, there are type 1 and type two, type 1 patients at all ages, um, depending on what has gone on in their life, and it's an autoimmune uh, disease. So type 1 is autoimmune, and that's where the body is not making any insulin? Yes, and there's different stages that you may be in where the body still may produce, but those patients will um, be lifelong insulin-dependent. So they have to take an insulin um, supplement? or Yes. Okay. And then what is type 2? So type 2 diabetes is also where um, the pancreas does produce insulin. However, the body may not accurately use it correctly or produce enough. So therefore, they have to have other agents, whether it be diet, and exercise and nutrition that try to correct those blood sugars, or they can have anywhere from pills to insulin to other diabetes agents, or a combination to kind of help to control the blood sugars in the body. So in both instances, it's a a problem with the way the body processes or handles sugar. Absolutely. All right. Are you, uh, can a person recover from either, or do do you get a cure for either type 1 or type 2? So there's no cure to diabetes. There are treatment measures, and diabetes can be controlled if it's type 2 and type 1. However, that um, incorporates a lot of other involvement and not just reliant on just medication to correct that. All right. Well, let me ask you to sort of walk me through. If I were newly diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, um, what would I need to know, and what would have been my symptoms leading up to my diagnosis? Well, with mainly the patients that I've uh, encountered in the hospital, 
it was more of like an abrupt thing that may have gradually happened over um, a matter of weeks, sometimes months. It depends on each patient. They're specific um, where there may be an onset of nausea, vomiting, some illness, lots of thirst that's not quenched and a lot of using the bathroom, urination, and sometimes losing weight um, uh, when, not, when you're not trying to can also be a factor that things have happened that are not usual. So those patients who may or may not have seen a provider may end up in the hospital in the ICU depending on the, the severity or they may seek a doctor to find out more things and that's how they're usually diagnosed. Sometimes it could be incidental and they could be in the hospital for something else and they may find out so it's, at that time. It would probably be a surprise then to find out that you know you have diabetes. Uh, often it has surprised to people um, especially patients who have not seen or seeked a provider in a long time. Um, I think they more like think that maybe they have a flu or some other kind of viral illness and not aware of the condition. Well, what, uh, what sorts of things does a diabetes educator provide? So through um, diabetes education, I like to inform the patient about the disease, the disease process, things that it will require um, to be, remain in a healthy state as much as possible and still be able to live a productive life. So those things would be anywhere from um, learning how to check their blood sugars, learning how to count their carbs if they're going to um, try to follow a carb-consistent diet, which is the best. Um, things that they should eat and how they should eat in moderation. There are handouts that I generally give to patients, how they need to take their medications, whether it be oral agents or injectable agents or insulin, a combination of all. That sounds, I mean, by the one sense, uh, the fact that it can be managed, it sounds like, that's encouraging. But all of what you just said sounds overwhelming. And often it is overwhelming. And it's not just the individual. This has an uh, impact on the family, um, people who are around this patient. And often if patients don't have anyone, it's very overwhelming because it's a lifestyle adjustment. It's waking up one day feeling like you're fine, and the next day you wake up and think, I have all of these things to do. However, um, education, I believe, is so important and crucial that the right way of explaining it to patients at a level where they understand and it doesn't overwhelm them as much, they are able to adapt slowly, but it's a process. Progress is a process. It doesn't happen overnight. And I always explain that and reinforce to patients, this is going to be ongoing. So you have to learn a little bit, grasp that, and kind of do it as a routine, just as you do anything else in the morning. You brush, brush your teeth, teeth, you eat breakfast, okay. things like that. So they just have to make, I always state, let diabetes fit in your life, not control your life. Okay. All right. Now, the checking sugars, counting carbs, being careful about eating um, medications, that applies to both type 1 and type 2, right? Yes, it does. It may be different medicines or different numbers that you're looking for. Yes. Um, overall, general, blood sugars between the ranges of 80 and 130. You don't want blood sugars to be too high, and you also don't want blood sugars to be too low. Less than 70 is considered a low blood sugar, and that's a blood sugar that needs to be treated with sugar. How would you, oh, you would just be checking your blood and notice that. Sometimes there's symptoms, depending on the patient, um, signs of shakiness, dizzy, weakness, uh, sweaty, Everyone may defer a little differently, but people who have had diabetes, and usually for a, for a while, they can feel the onset. I always encourage them to treat it at that time. Don't let it go because you want your body to be able to recognize it, and you don't want to wait till you're into a critical state before trying to treat that blood sugar. Okay, so sort of once you get the hang of it and you're used to tracking and, and knowing what you're eating, you can probably predict, you know, what's happening with your body before you even test, right? Yes, yeah, some things that can cause low blood sugars are going long extensive periods without eating, taking insulin without eating, um, and other activities that are unexpected. If you do things that are exertional and you're not aware of what you've done or when you took your insulin last, so they have to kind of program things. But if you're not aware of these things, you can be having experience in low blood sugars and not aware of why it's taking place. So I always... Um, 
encourage patients to report those blood sugars to their doctors, bring their glucometers when they go to their appointments, kind of explore it a little more and not think that it's a normal part of the routine and that it should be happening because it's not a normal um, part of having diabetes. Do you encourage people to um, make sure that their friends know that they have diabetes so that the friends can sort of, I don't know, keep watch or be aware? I do, especially younger um, individuals that I encounter who may have um, new onsets of type 1 diabetes. They're college students. They're in the prime of their life. They're overwhelmed with all of these things that they now have to incorporate, checking their blood sugars up to four to six times a day, taking insulin up to four times a day. It's a lot, and it can be very dangerous if your surroundings are not aware that you have a condition. So I tell them if there's someone you trust or even on the um, campus, like to speak out to the medical staff and let them know, and we try to prevent those measures. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with nurse practitioner Cassandra Bradford on the subject of diabetes. Now, there's, uh, we've, we've talked a little about um, treatment mo- modalities, but there's some challenges. There's medication pills, maybe, that you would need. Insulin, which yeah. is that just injections, or is that a pill also? So, yes, insulin is an injection. Um, the challenges that I have found with patients, uh, um, people who have diabetes, is thinking that when they take the, the, these other supplemental things to help with their diabetes or treatment measures, they feel that they may be able to still live a normal life and eat the things that they choose to eat. However, that's not the case. They should still watch the carbohydrates they take in, how many they're eating, um, And the general range for women, the lower end is 30 to 45 grams of carb per meal. The lighter meal could be the lowest, and the two higher meals could be 45. Also, men with 45 being the lightest meal and 60 grams of carb for the larger meals. However, if you go over that and you're taking insulin as well as oral agents and other diabetes agents, it doesn't mean that those things, because it's more, is taken in consideration that you're eating more. You still have to stay within those ranges of trying to keep a carb-consistent meal in order for them to work appropriately. So checking your blood sugar before you eat because you want to get it at a state where there's nothing in your system and get an accurate blood sugar and then treat from there and not take random blood sugars because you may report random blood sugars to your physician or provider and therefore get an increase or decrease in medication where it may not be needed. So, you know, if they're snacking between meals and after suppers, I also encourage them to share that with providers because it can make an impact on what they should be receiving. Yes. So I hear you talking about carbs, carbohydrates, um, but sugar is is the thing in the body that is not being processed right. So what I describe to patients when I say um, carbs, I say things we like are usually white but may not be always right in proportion are bread, rice, pasta, potatoes. All of those things, they're not sweet, but they turn to sugar. So it's easy to overlook that you're eating sugar sugar items. People look at soda, cookies, cakes, right. things like that, and they look more into that when we eat more of the other items on a daily basis. And I don't think that it's always incorporated that these are carbs. And then when they grab a drink, it may be juice in the morning or milk or and any carbs you add is still adding on to you have that to count carbs. Those. Yes, you okay. have to count them in because if you don't, you're not going to see the outcomes in the blood sugars that you're looking for. And sometimes that becomes very frustrating and it makes people turn away from their treatment measures, feeling that they're not working. But I don't hear you saying that you can't have any. Like you, you can have. You some can carbs. have certain things in moderation. And there's um, also handouts that we provide to patients that um, give them some options that are lower carbs or no carbs in their snack items or choices that things that they may have a treat. Like I have patients ask, can they go to a wedding? Can they have a piece of cake? Can they, you know, things like that. Those things should never be habit, but they certainly can go to a wedding and have a piece of cake, but you don't want them to incorporate that as a part of, okay, I can still have this. They should check with their providers and see what are the things and maybe speak to a a registered dietitian, certified diabetes educator, to see what things in their diet that they're concerned about and if they still can have those things because we are not trying to provi- uh, remove things that people love. 
but make a way where it's still beneficial for the condition you're trying to treat. So if you're following carefully your diet that's been, if you have diabetes and you have a diet that's been set for you and you're following it carefully, um, are you liable to be eating healthier in general? And will that help you in more than just ways? I believe that it definitely can help in more ways. And it also can help families because families usually use a time of mealtime as something that they want to and and involve the others with and it be a desirable moment in your life. And I think that with the things that I've talked to patients about and their families, it incorporates them and helps them with other conditions. They may have high cholesterol, hypertension, things like that, where they decide together, we need to make this change. So it's, it, it's an involvement of the family if your family is involved. And I think it does make a better outcome for everyone. Well, before we run out of time, I wanted to ask if there's other long-term health issues related to diabetes that people with diabetes need to be aware of. Um, there are long-term um, diabetes complications because diabetes is a disease that attacks vessels. It can attack any vessels. However, we do focus on tiny vessels and following an A1C, which is a blood test that is taken, um, and it has a, a number that the patients are aware of at times, but they don't always understand what it means. And it tells how well controlled the diabetes is. So this number, I explain to patients, if there's anything they can remember about an A1C, usually optimal levels is like seven or less, depending on the provider and the patient, they may say it can be give or take, they will tell them the number. Um, The higher the number to always think my blood is more sugary, and I need to do something to change that. Because as it climbs, more damage can happen. It's silent at times, and you don't know until it's late. Well, very good information. Thank you so much for being here. My guest is nurse practitioner Cassandra Bradford from the Jocelyn Diabetes Center at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. is HealthLink on Air. We see the red kettles during the holiday season, but how many Central New Yorkers know the type of services that the Salvation Army provides to the community year-round? Here in the HealthLink on Air studio to tell us about the Salvation Army is Major David Dean. He's the Director of Operations for Onondaga County. Welcome. Good morning. Now, the Salvation Army has been serving Syracuse for more than 125 years. Is that right? Yeah, actually, 1883. I didn't even know because I've only been in town for about nine months. And, uh, of course, anything you want to know, go on Google and you can get the information. And uh, 1883 in March, I guess, is when they started. And uh, they they were met with really a lot of opposition in the early days, as the Army was really all over the world. And uh, uh, But they got a foothold, and by the late uh, 1800s, they had come up with kind of like a worksite hotel that they were using to you know, help poor people uh, be able to stay and get a job. And they were offering job training and said by the early 1900s, they were well established with housing and feeding, which is kind of two of the real big things we still do in Onondaga County today. So housing and feeding is sort of how it got its start. Yeah, yeah. Um, William Booth's motto was soup, soap, and salvation. So, you know, feed them, you know, uh, get them a job, clean them up. And uh, he had a cab horse principle he had that, you know, human beings should at least be able to live as good as a, a London cab horse. You know, they should have a job. They should have a meal. They should have a roof over their head at night. And if an animal could have that, why shouldn't a human? And the basics. And I know there's um, it, there's something on the website about providing a helping hand without judgment. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. that's yeah. heart to problem. God, hand to man. That's kind of always what we've done. And it's amazing looking at the old days. You know, we still do the same stuff. So we really haven't really reinvented the wheel much. We've pretty much stuck with our roots and just, you know, helping people with basic things. And, of course, health is one of those huge needs that, you know, everyone needs to be healthy. Now, uh, Salvation Army is an international movement? We are. Okay. 130 countries uh, around the world. And um, 
our headquarters is in London, England. I've actually been in the general's office. My um, my uncle was uh, one of the top five in the world with the Salvation Army. So he had a, a nice office right on the Thames River there in London and uh, went into the general's office and very, very modest, very small, very simple. Uh, the general of the Salvation Army actually makes less than I do. Uh, so, uh, you know, we're not paid well, but we have a nice compensation with house and stuff like that. But a very, very simple organization from the ground up. Okay. Now, the Syracuse office um, that you're the director of operations for Onondaga County, yeah. you just serve all of Onondaga County? That's correct. Okay. But then there's other Salvation Armies in the adjacent there are, yeah. We have, you know, going to the west, we have um, Auburn is, is one that we uh, work with a lot. We had Southern Tier, Cortland, and uh, Corning and Elmira. And, you know, going east, you have uh, Utica and Herkimer and Rome. We actually ran the Salvation Army in Rome for five years, had a summer camp there. So uh, there, there's about 45 units in upstate New York, and that pretty much goes from maybe exit 20 on the throughway uh, all the way over down to the uh, PA border uh, down around the Jamestown area. Okay. Now the website says you serve infants to seniors. So let's talk about the various programs. I guess we should start with the babies. Sure, sure. Yeah, Uh, we have uh, several programs for infants, uh, and they're really located right on our campus uh, over on South Salina. And we have a a cab horse and an early head start. Now the early head start really pushes a lot of health, you know, uh, quality things into the kids' lives. They have to have a checkup every three months. Uh, We actually have a full-time nurse on staff. And she does screenings with the children uh, for every three months for lead, uh, for vision, for hearing. Uh, the parents have to abide by that three-month checkup, you know, well-child checkup. Otherwise, they cannot stay in the program. And then they transition over when they're three to the cab horse, and it all continues over there. Uh, so there's, of course, nutrition pushed in with CACFP money. Uh, the kids get two hot meals a day, and then they get two snacks as well. So we, we all know that, you know, those early years, right, in a child's life are critical. And so the, the children that we see getting those, those health services and those stimulus and those other services that might need to be pushed in, uh, you know, the Army's really good about identifying, uh, you know, deficiencies maybe in a child's life at a young age and, and starting to push those in even as early as one or two. And if you can get those push in as early, a lot of times you can reverse that trend. Sure. Uh, so health is really huge, I think, in our, in our children's programs. And it's neat because we can take a child as, as young as six weeks and we can keep them up until the time they go to kindergarten. And uh, there's years that we might have 16 or 17 kids that have gone through our entire program from infant, and now they're ready to go into kindergarten in the district. So it's pretty neat. We have a little graduation every year where the kids are able to graduate. And uh, But health is such a big part of that uh, because of, of the type of population that we serve, you know, the low income. And, you know, one of the three big uh, social determinants, of course, of, of poverty, right, is, is food, you know, shelter, and health. And, uh, you know, we're really making that available on that level for those kids. And, and, of course, the parents are being trained, too. You know, if they see all this going on with the kids, I mean, there's assessments that are done every three months with the parents, and the parents are in on it. You know, there's, uh, if there's problems that are noted, the parents are brought in. And, you know, parents are really being allowed to see things and, and, and you know, really deal with things, you know, on a different level than maybe if they didn't have that push-in help that the Salvation Army and other agencies are able to offer. Are uh, immunizations part of that? Yes, they have to have their shots. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It sounds like that would be very nice to have all of that sort of under one roof. Yeah, one-stop shopping. One-stop, right. It's pretty pretty great because right above it we have a, a TAPC, which is a teen and parenting center, and it's a center for, uh, for pregnant teenagers. Uh, they either are pregnant or they already have children with them, and, and they can walk right down the stairs and they can put their child in that daycare. And they can go off to school, they can go off to job, they can go off to job training. So it's, it's really just a fantastic setup that literally they go right, they go out the building, they go left, they go into the daycare. Okay. So those are great services, especially a young girl needs. It's, you know, usually by yourself, right, on the streets, on our own. And uh, they have it just, just below where they live. So it's just an awesome, you know, conglomeration and a really collaboration on all that we do. Well, that's a good segue into sort of the youth programs for the older youth yeah. that you have. Um, there's a camp, Long Point Camp? There is, yeah. Long Point Camp is out on Seneca Lake, and um, we're, we're gearing up for our camping season now. And uh, we do six sessions out there with about um, 200 kids a session. So we'll send probably about 1,200 kids a year. And that's for all of upstate New York. That's just not Syracuse. Uh, but Syracuse will send about um, about 100 children out there this summer. And it gives uh, an inner city kid or even, you know, someone maybe out in the suburbs a chance to get out 
and get out in the fresh air for you know six to seven days. And yet we this year there's a lot of different themes, so it looks really fun. There's like a superheroes week and there's a uh, Olympics week, so they're kind of theming it more. That's what kind of camps are going to now. They're going more of those specialty type camps that kids really instead of a general camp where you sit around the campfire and out, they really want to have more engaging things for the kids. And of course, health is huge out there. Uh, it's a it's a huge uh, stretch to get a kid to camp today you know, with all the regulations, but all the mm-hmm. kids have to have their shots and, you know, current physicals and immunization records in place and have their uh, summer food service form filled out. So there's a lot of things that are health related that go on to all of our youth programs and even getting a kid to camp to make sure once they get there, they're healthy. And then, of course, you know, nurses on staff. Oh, I imagine. Now, um, thinking about the health services, do you have anything for seniors? We do. We do. We have a senior day program. And uh, what that is, is it's, it's a drop-in or a walk-in, although we do provide transportation, and uh, seniors are able to come there. We have around 70 to 80 registered. We have about 50 on a daily basis, so we usually about two-thirds enrollment uh, show up, and they get a, a hot breakfast there. Uh, they get a hot lunch. Obviously, it's a, it's a social program. It gets them out of their apartments. You know, a lot of them are living by them, themselves. Their spouses are no longer alive, and so there's really that whole socialization of being around other seniors. Um, they're able to have good nutrition for two meals a day. Uh, they're able to have services pushed into that, health services. Uh, there's referrals made to other agencies. Uh, there's different things, screenings that are done there for seniors over the course of a year. Uh, so that's, of course, you know, keeping a senior healthy is you, you, you want to keep them in their house, you know, as long as they're able to do that. And, you know, we can push in services in that house. Referrals can be made there as well. So I think our senior program, seniors are a lot different. I mean, they're a lot, you know, living a lot longer, obviously, aren't they? A lot more mobile. So seniors have become like a lot more selective where they go. It used to be a senior would go to the same place every day, but now they kind of pick and choose because they're still driving. Public transportation's good. There's other transportation out there. Uh, But yeah, that's a really important program as people age out, you know, to be able to have that uh, group of people around and really support network. And I see a lot of the same faces every day when I walk through. Oh, I imagine. Uh, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Major David Dean from the Salvation Army. So tell me how the Salvation Army finds the people that need your services. How do people find you? Sure. Well, we have a website, and uh, we're very linked in with uh, United Way. Uh, we were in an event last night that they had, and uh, of course, there's also um, all the other agencies in town. I mean, no one can solve everyone's problems. It's just not possible, you know. So we have all of our programs are able to link into our other programs. So if we determine there's a family uh, in one of our PPS programs, you know, preventative service programs that might need some, some daycare, uh, they could be referred down to the daycare, you know, a referral. If, it, if it's the other way around, if there's some domestic things uh, in a daycare family, that we need to refer out to our domestic violence, our DV, you know, shelter. Uh, we could we could do that. So there's so many uh, abilities for us to be able to link within our own network, but then to go outside into the community and really find the help that the you know the people need. Because uh, I mean, in my dad's day, he was a Salvation Army pastor too. You know, someone had one problem. You know, now these families are coming in and they have generational poverty, you know, they have addiction issues, and it might just not be alcohol and drugs, it could be several things, you know, the opioid crisis we know is huge, Uh, it could be a domestic violence thing, Uh, it could be, you know, a child with a disability, so there's an awful lot of things out there that are kind of pulling families apart now, Uh, and so we're able to kind of link a lot of those within the Army, but if not, we're certainly willing to go outside and find the help that that family needs, because it's going to make us more effective, you know, with the things that we're able to serve as well. Well, that's what I wondered, because there's other organizations, um, there's Catholic Charities, there's yes. Rescue Mission, there's other groups Work here. with all of so them. So you all have a cooperative... Okay. Yeah, because yeah, we don't have like a men's shelter, so if, if a man needs shelter, obviously we would refer them over to the Rescue Mission. Uh, you know, our shelters are really teens, you know, our Booth Health Shelter does teens that are 12 to 17, then we have Barnabas which is uh, 18 to 24, you know, for young adults. Our TAPC is for pregnant women or, uh, you know, teenagers that have children, uh, and they can stay there for up to two years in those apartments. We have a 24-bed shelter for them, and they're able to get the services they need. And the great thing about TAPC is within three months, every one of those girls is going to have a doctor, you know, a primary physician. You know, a lot of them will come in pregnant four months, six months. They've never seen a doctor one time. They've had no prenatal care. You know, so one of the mandates of the program is that we have to get them in prenatal care, you know, and then services are pushed in, life skills, teaching them how to budget and cook and clean to get, to get ready 
for the preparation of the coming of that child and if they already have one you know to parent better and it's amazing that you know we live in an area where it's one of the highest pregnancy teen pregnancy rates in the United States and the girls that come into that that pregnancy center and stay there uh, 98% of them remain uh, pregnant free for the two years that they're there if they stay for two years which is an amazing statistic you know that wow. they're really taking time to focus on the child or children that they have and learn to be a better parent all the way. And of course, health is a huge part of that when you have a young one. Right. What's your capacity like? We can do 24, mm-hmm. and uh, they can have one or two children. I've never seen any more with two. Uh, they're small rooms. They're kind of like in a, you know, an apartment or a hotel. Uh, but there's common space where they cook their own meals. Of course, most of them will get some type of you know public assistance, and they're able to do that. Uh, they have daycare provided for their children if they want to you know make use of it, so that they can go and and you know do what they need to do. A lot of them are finishing high school, uh, some of them are starting college. We've had uh, girls in there that have you know really almost finished college by the time they've gotten out. So, it's it's a fantastic program. It's uh, Syracuse Salvation Army is the largest in the world per capita. Uh, that's what my boss told me, so I'm going to believe him. You know, but we really have a pretty small population base, don't we, in Onondaga County? It's not like a Buffalo or a Rochester where you have well over a million, but we're half a million here. Uh, and the services that are run here are just incredible. I always heard of Syracuse. Never thought I'd be here. You know, but once I'm here for nine months, I, I'm in awe every day of what our people do. It's, uh, it sounds like it's something that you can really see that you're making an impact. Every, every day. And the stories that we hear... Uh, from our shelters. We have another shelter for uh, mentally, uh, you know, challenged women. And we just added a 16-bed apartment to it, brand new, took five years in the making. Uh, so we can we can work with 15 women who have uh, mental health caseloads. Uh, and then upstairs on the second, third, and fourth floor, we can now ho- house 16 ladies permanently that are on a mental health caseload. So these ladies are able to go to the shelter, and once they get stable enough, they can move right upstairs and there's no stipulation on when they have to be out. I mean, that can be their apartment as long as they can fund it and stay there. And and they are absolutely beautiful. Took an old building over on uh, South Gettys and, and renovated it. I'm sorry, South Onondaga and uh, renovated it. And it is just beautiful inside. Mm-hmm. And, and now we're able to push in services, you know, on a different level because now we have people that are literally living there 24 hours a day. Well, before we run out of time, let me ask you how listeners can help if they want to. I'm sure Salvation Army accepts donations like during the Red Kettle Drive during the holidays. But year round, what are some other things that that could help? We uh, we have a website. You know, if you just Google the Salvation Army Syracuse, uh, Syracuse Area Services, and our programs are listed there. We have different text campaigns. Uh, We have uh, direct mail donations. Uh, anyone can always send us a check down to 677 South Salina. If there's a specific program you see on the website, you say, hey, I'd really like to, you know, really help out with like the teen parenting center for, for, you know, teenagers that are pregnant. I'd really like to help women stay off the streets. You know, my heart is with kids, you know, the youth services. I mean, you can really restrict where your gift goes. Uh, there's so many ways to give. The website has an opportunity there to give right online. Uh, people are always welcome to walk in and give gifts as well. But I think the biggest thing is just coming before the public like we are this morning and just letting people know what we do. Because everyone knows the name. But if you say, you know, give me three things the Salvation Army does, people are like, uh, the red kettles and uh, I don't know. <laughs> well, uh, are you looking for volunteers? Always, yeah. Okay. yeah. Especially as we come into the summer months. And I mean, obviously, there's certain programs that we can't have volunteers in, you know, because uh, there has to be a certain level of clearance and, and background checks. Sure. But, uh, we have so many different things going on. We have properties all over Onondaga County within the Syracuse area and, you know, that need upkeep. And I mean, we need contractors and painters and people to do outside work and just all kinds of stuff. So if people want to volunteer, we will find a spot for you. And I know people uh, see the Salvation Army thrift stores throughout the community. Sure. So donations to, to their shop there yeah that all helps the salvation yeah, that goes right back into our rehab center over on erie boulevard and uh, they they literally you know do um thousands of nights of shelter over the course of a year in fact i'm going over there uh, i usually go over on wednesdays they have a, a church service over there and we usually go over and participate i come out of addiction myself i was an addict for seven years and so uh, the lord brought me out of that and then asked me to be a pastor so that's what we've done now for 31 years so it's been very exciting to see but the thrift stores all that money goes right back in to help people in recovery and of course health and recovery is a huge issue as well isn't it wonderful. Well, my guest has been Major David Dean from the Salvation Army. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, 
Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Tish Perlman, a former poet laureate of Tompkins County and current host of the cultural affairs radio show Out of Bounds, came through an almost fatal heart attack late in 2017. She gave us two powerful poems that celebrate life while recognizing its opposite is always lurking nearby. Up first is Fading Light. It could come from pale blue sky, the end, I mean. You ache to know what you were meant to live for. The truth rarely unfolds like a scroll. Perhaps for those who shun the world but are God-bound, the child longs only to live, but it is never enough. Accept gifts. Is breath a gift? Is fear? We just can't figure out which star is ours. Discover your inhale and exhale as a song. It creates a melody. Face it, you have been cast out like the blue moon, beautiful, fleeting, and unnoticed until you locate the heart. The second poem she wrote is called Circling a Meditation. And if I should die while fully awake, will I then become the dream? And if I should awaken... In my last breath, will I then become the spirit? And if I am stilled and my world black as black, will I still meet the distant stars? And if I should find in this new land the meaning, the answers, the truest reasons for why I walked the earth, will there be not a soul to tell? And if I should return as a radiant, recognizable self, beginning all over again, Shall I set out early for the road that never ends? This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, why are the rates of sexually transmitted diseases on the rise? If you missed any of today's show, Listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes and other podcast sources by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.